Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 4. We've been studying this book for a while now, if you're new to us, and we're studying through verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We've just finished a study of the, the seven letters, the letters to the seven churches throughout Asia Minor. We found them applicable to us individually and corporately. And when we started this series, we said that uh, you can understand the book of Revelation is divided into four parts. It is it's four visions that Jesus has given to the Apostle John. And each one is, is, uh, is identified with the words, after this I looked, after this I saw. And uh, that's exactly the way chapter 4 begins, after this I looked and behold. Now, in these first three chapters in the study of these letters to the seven churches, we've seen some tough things. Jesus goes among these churches. He picks up every one. They're symbolized by a, a candlestick. He picks, each, picks up each one. He, he turns it around and inside out, and he says, this is what's going right. This is what you're doing well, and this is what you must repent of. This is what you must change. And if you don't, giving evidence that you belong to me, that you're united to me, then judgment will come. I'll, I'll do away with your church. It's, it's tough-hitting stuff. He turns the church inside out and he, he pokes around and he reveals what needs to be repented of. And they've been some tough studies. But as is John is prone to do under Jesus' leadership throughout this book, is he, he takes us in, he drills in, drills in very deeply into our hearts, pokes around, shows us what needs to be repented of. And then he goes back to heaven and he shows us where our help is. It's exactly what happens here. He takes us up to heaven, and we'll see a vision with John's help, by the Spirit's inspiration, we will see a vision that explains why there was anything that went right in any of the disciples in these seven churches, and what happens when a disciple turns his back on Christ or ignores Christ or just wants to blend in. What is, there's something skewed about that vision. When you see this vision he has in chapter 4, you will eagerly obey him. When you ignore it, you'll blend in. Well, what is that vision? Let's look at it beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> After this, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. First living creature like a lion, second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. 1992, the Washington Post broke a story. They unveiled a government secret that had been held very tightly for 30-plus years. It was the existence of a bunker beneath the prestigious Greenbrier Golf Resort under the West Virginia wing in particular. A bunker that was 112,000 square feet, it was 720 feet below the ground, it could hold 1,100 officials, it had uh, three 25,000-gallon uh, water tanks, it had thousands of gallons of diesel fuel, it had a clinic, a cafeteria, a pharmacy, a laboratory, a TV studio. It could hold all the members or representative members of the Senate and the House and the president and his cabinet and judges it was the Eisenhower bunker. And the fear and the, and the terror of the, of the Cold War is the thought that if the nuclear holocaust were to occur, they would need to reconstitute the government deeply beneath the earth. And it was held to be a secret. The Forsyth Associates ran it. They were thought to be the AV assistants at the Greenbrier. For decades, they kept it a secret. Why did it need to be a secret? Because even the president of the most powerful nation on the earth is vulnerable if the wrong people get into his office of power. If the wrong people get into the, the place where decisions are made, where power is executed, if the wrong people get into those places wrongdoers can unwind things. They can undermine the best and the most powerful of nations. So what does it say when King Jesus says to the world, puts it in permanent Scripture, come on in here? What does it say when he flings open the doors of the throne room of heaven and he says, I want you to come in and I'm going to give you a personal tour, a 360 degree view of my throne and top and bottom as well. What does it say? 
it says that this is a king who is not threatened by any other power. It says that it is a kingdom that is invulnerable. It says it is a kingdom that cannot fail. This is the kingdom of God, and you're either a disciple of it or you're not. You're either acting as a disciple of it or you're not. That's the vision that makes all the difference in these seven letters. Those who were living with the throne clearly in view were willing to suffer and die even for Christ. Those who forgot the throne, forgot the kingdom of God, were the ones who blended in. There's only one place to be. That is to be under submission to Jesus Christ as the King. It's the only happy place to be, the only thriving place to be. If you're not, judgment awaits. Now, that's the way the passage begins. You, we, you see two things, essentially, of Jesus here. He is a sovereign judge. He's a sovereign redeemer. And you cannot appreciate that He is a sovereign redeemer without first acknowledging that He is a sovereign judge. Now, look at the judgment, the justice, the all-powerful nature of Christ the King in verses 1 through 5. First of all, we, we, see, we see four things about His, His kingship here. We see that it's, it's high. We see what's on it. It's surrounding and, from, and, and judging from what comes from it. We see Him to be a sovereign judge. It is, in verse 1, a high throne. It is the highest, as Pastor Burns has already taught us. Join all the glorious names of wisdom, fame, and power, says our hymn. All are too poor to express His worth and His power. Jesus says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Come up here. Come to this highest place, not just the highest place in altitude, but the highest place of supreme authority. Come up to this place where I sit in victory. That's the meaning of the trumpet. Remember I said when we study this book, we're going to learn how to study apocalyptic literature. That means books that are put together with symbols that also study the Old Testament. And so we think back through the whole Bible, and what does a trumpet mean? A trumpet announces the presence of a king, the presence of a victorious king. You don't play the trumpet when you've lost. You play the trumpet when you are victorious. It is the last trump that we await in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The trumpet sounds. The dead in Christ will rise first. It is the trumpet sound that will, that will signal the resurrection of the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, it is the trumpet of victory. He says, come up here in this infinitely high place, the place of supreme authority, in this place where I declare victory, and I will tell you, verse 1, what must take place place. Whenever you see that in Scripture, it means this is what God has decreed. And because He has decreed, it is going to happen. We said several times that we study the book of Revelation, it has this point, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. This is what must take place. The kingdom of God will supersede all other kingdoms and will continue to rule and reign until all of His enemies are made His footstool. second thing we see about this, this throne is that it is, it is decorated with jewels. He says in verse 2, verse 3, I saw one there, with the appearance of jasper and carnelian and emerald. As you can imagine, creative interpreters throughout history have, have allegorized each of those colors 
Carnelian is the, is the color of sacrifice and green, the color of viv- vivacious vitality and so forth. But when we study symbolic literature, we can't press it too hard. We, back, we, we, we look at it and then we back up and we get the general idea. So what is the general idea? That when you look at the throne upon which Jesus sits, you see one that is characterized by transparency, by truth, and that truth is beautiful. And that truth is not only beautiful, it makes beautiful. It makes us beautiful. When we submit to the rule of Christ and to His reign, our lives become beautiful. Everything that His Word, His kingdom touches becomes beautiful. So we see one who is infinitely high, the one who has declared victory, the one who is characterized by truth, the one whose transparency makes beautiful. The third thing we see about this throne is that it is surrounded by 24 thrones in verse 4. 24 thrones, 24 elders, and each elder with a golden crown. Now, what do these numbers mean? 12 is the, is the historic, is the, the consistent symbol of the tribes of Israel, of the patriarchs of the Old Testament, and 12 is the number of the apostles in the New Testament. Together, they surround the throne, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 patriarchs who pointed forward to the coming of Jesus, the ones who said He is coming, He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the one who will be the suffering servant, all of those prophecies of the coming of Jesus. That was what the 12 patriarchs were pointing to, and the 12 apostles were pointing back to the same, that Savior, that Emmanuel has come. And surrounding the throne, here's, here's, this, here's, what's, here's the vision. The entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament are all, every one of them, all of those books of the Bible are pointing to Jesus and saying, He is the King, He is the prophet, He is the priest. So, surrounding the throne, the testimonies that this whole history of the world. The whole history of redemption is about Jesus. Fourth thing we see about this throne in verse 5 is that from it is coming lightning, from it is coming peals of thunder, from it burning seven torches of fire. What in the world is this? Well, again, we, we have to think about the whole Bible. We've studied the book of Exodus. We studied Exodus 19. Where God says to the people of God, stand around the Mount Sinai, Moses, you come up here by yourself. I'm going to give you the law. And I'm going to testify to the people that I am giving the law to you by peals of thunder, by lightning. I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments, and then I'm going to give you the sacrificial code. I'm going to give you the, the judicial code. All of that is going to be given. It's going to be clear from the thunder, from the objective signs and signs, the symbols. I'm going to prove to the people this is my word. So it's a reference to the law as it comes from the Old Testament. And what about the torches of fire? Remember in Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire come and sit on the apostles 
And they preached the gospel so that everyone heard it in his own language. Now, why these seven spirits of God? You say, I thought we only, I thought we had a trinity, not uh, seven spirits of God plus the Father and the Son. No, this, here's, uh, here's the Old Testament imagery. Again, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, in order to magnify something, sometimes it was called its plural. Sometimes a singular thing was referred to it by its plural. This is what the Queen of England does when she uses the royal we. We say, it's only one person, but the plural emphasizes majesty, perfection. And so these seven torches of fire, the seven spirits of God, is a reference to the perfect and infinite and holy, Holy Spirit. From that Holy Spirit came the gospel through the apostles. From the Holy Spirit comes the preaching of the God, the declaration of the will of God. When we put that together, what do we have? We have a judgment seat upon which one who is beautiful and transparent in his truth sits, one who is high above all things. We have the Lord God Almighty Himself. We have the one who is surrounded by the testimony of the patriarchs and the apostles saying, this is the Christ. And then we have from that throne the declaration of the Word of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament, fulfilled in Him, but prescriptive for our lives as well. And all of that is declared about that throne because he is reminding the people whom he has just warned in these seven letters, this is the throne before which every one of you someday will stand. This is where we must come in worship every Sunday. Joining with these saints who have gone before us is to see, is to get outside of ourselves and to imagine ourselves standing before the throne of God. The throne of Christ's judgment, the throne of Christ's justice. That word is being thrown around a lot, very carelessly, justice. And uh, people are holding up their books. This is what social justice is. This is what biblical justice is. And many of those books only fit the biases of the people who have written them or the people who are holding on to them. When Jesus says, from this throne, I, this is the way I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge according to my word, my definition of justice. And to be justified before me, first of all, means that you give up trying to earn your own righteousness. It is to acknowledge that I am the perfect one, I demand perfection, and to say, I cannot achieve that. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus, put that righteousness that you earned on the cross in my place and put my sin on your, on your shoulders and justify me. And then Jesus says, here is the way, here, here's the, here the Bible says, this is the way the just or the righteous will live. And it's spelled out from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the Bible says that the one who is justified will prove that he or she is justified by the works you do. And those works are the works of Jesus. They are helping 
the poor, materially and spiritually. That's clearly in the Bible. It's visiting the sick. It is paying attention to the outcast. It is giving hospitality to the stranger and alien. It is the cup of cold water in Jesus' name to the one who doesn't deserve it. It is loving your enemies. It is sharing your faith with someone else so they can go to heaven. It is, it is to stand up for those who are being sidelined, stand up for those who are being mistreated. Jesus is the one who establishes those criteria. And he expects, he, he, he paints that vision of everyone gathered in front of him. And some people say, oh, Lord, we knew you. We preached your word to the ends of the earth. We, we traveled to the far places. We worked miracles in your name. And he said, because you didn't feed the poor, because you didn't attend to me when I was naked and hungry, because you didn't stand up for the imprisoned, depart from me, I never knew you. Because when Jesus lives in you, this is what you find yourself doing. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be able to say, but I read a book that told me I didn't have to do those things. I, I read a book that said that that's, uh, that's uh, not Christian thinking. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he's not going to, you're not going to be able to say, well, here's Robertson's book, or here's Keller's book, or here's somebody named Allen's book, here's, uh, here is Bauckham's book, here's MacArthur's book. He's going to say, what does my book say, and how have I incarnated it? That's what you will find yourself doing when you're united to me. Judgment seat of Christ stands between you and heaven. Now, you know, there are a few places on the face of the earth that more clearly resemble the judgment seat than the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles. I was reminded of that this week. I went there with my son. It's a simple process of, should be, of transferring a title from one party to the other. There's a woman in front of me who had been there three times already. And each time had been sent home. She came back this time. She said, I have everything that they told me to have, including my DNA sample, my original fingerprints. And <clears throat> but when she got up to the counter, now here's what you find when you're in the DMV. You stand exactly where you're told. There's a bulletproof glass, rightly so, in between the judges that sit there on the dais and you. And behind them are these license plates, and that's what you want. You're trying to get there. You're trying to get that. And to get there, you have to get through this judge. This lady came up at her fourth time, and she was told that she didn't have, I don't know, a hair follicle or something that she needed to prove that she was the person she was, and she just went off. She'd had enough. She slapped her papers on the, you told me this is what I was told, this is what I needed. Understandably, she's very frustrated. But rather calmly on the other side, a woman said, unless you bring this piece of paper, you're not getting that license. It didn't matter what she said, how she protested, how good she thought she, well, no, no matter what she had on her phone, she needed a piece of paper. She had to bring everything that that person said she had to have before she could get that license. 
It doesn't matter what your biases are. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what anybody has told you or what you've read. If it doesn't match what Jesus has told you, the final exam is going to be, you're not getting to the inheritance prepared by the Father from the foundation of the world. That's the justice He will bring. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, it should. It does me even as I preach it. Because we have to be reminded that we are not the Christ and we are not good. And that we are totally at His mercy. And our judgment doesn't matter, only Christ does. And when you come to that realization, you'll fall before Him and say, I need your righteousness. And I want to live the way and I need your enabling power to, enable, to empower me to live the way I am supposed to. That gives away that Jesus is in front of me. And thank goodness the passage doesn't end with this judgment seat of Christ. It goes on to reveal that He is not only the sovereign judge, He is the sovereign redeemer. Verses 6 through 11 tells us three things. He, 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 he walks us around the throne and gives us a tour. He says, first of all, look here in front, in front of the throne in verses 6 and 9 and 11. There is a sea of glass and crystal, and there are living creatures giving thanks to the one seated on the throne. What does this mean? This is the this is what happens when you realize that you have nothing and Jesus is everything. You worship. You worship Him. You don't look around and judge the way other people are worshiping or say, I'm not going to worship unless it just suits my fancy. You fall down and worship because Christ is the sovereign Redeemer. And you fall down in worship in gratitude for bringing peace. That's the image here of the sea of glass. In the old world, you didn't go on the sea unless you absolutely had to because that was a place to go get killed. And when there is a sea of glass, well, that's, that's only there because the Holy Spirit who hovers over the chaos is the one who brings that peace. When you recognize that your salvation brings, has brought you peace, you've done nothing to earn it or deserve it, it must cause you to worship. Whatever your anxiety, whatever your fears, whatever your terrors, whatever your dreads, when you get the throne of Christ before you, when you recognize that you are worshiping in this moment with those who have already gone before, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Tim Russell, then you realize it's going to be okay. Christ is on the throne. I'm going to worship Him. He saved me. Why would He not also get me home? The second thing you notice in verse 3 is what is encircling the throne. We've already talked about the three jewels, but I skipped over the rainbow. 
The rainbow, again, we have to know our Old Testament. God sent that flood on the, on the earth to judge it, and, and then when He caused the waters to recede, He put a rainbow in the, cli- in the, in the sky to say, I'll never judge the world again by, I'll never kill everybody by water again. Now, what is the bow? If you're a bow hunter, you know, you don't hang your bow up by the string. That'll ruin the tension. You hang it by the bow. That's the way Jesus, God said, I'm putting my bow up, my, my weapon of war, I'm, I'm hanging it on the wall. When you come to Christ, when Christ unites your life to His, when He takes your sin and gives you His righteousness, then the judgment of God is taken care of. God takes His weapon of war and puts it down and says, we're friends. Then what do we see when we come underneath? Let's crawl under the throne together. Let's look under the hood, verses 6 to 8. Four living creatures. Here's the power. How does, that, how does that sovereignty, that sovereign goodness of Jesus Christ get from up there to down here? Here's the explanation, through His angels. Now, He characterizes these angels by four creatures. They're incidentally pictured on the front of the pulpit, though this refers to the Gospels. But here's the, here's the lion, the ox, the man, the eagle. They're all descriptive of the angels. There's fierce as a lion swift as an eagle, the intelligence of a man, the strength of an ox. These are, John Calvin called angels, the fingers of God. God has His will, but He works His will through His fingers by His angels that are charged with bringing about His will on the earth and protecting you and getting you home. Each of you who is a Christian, you don't have just one guardian angel. You get in too much trouble for one guardian angel. You need hundreds and thousands of angels. And God has multiplied them in order to get you and me home through this dangerous world. Despite our resistance, He gets us home with those angels. One other thing I want you to see under this throne. It's at the end, verse 11, the very end of the end. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they, watch this, existed and were created. Now, John, did John get mixed up? Shouldn't he have said they created, he created all things and therefore they existed? I mean, how could anything exist before it was created? But he says he existed and were created in that order. Well, this is further assurance that God is going to accomplish what must be accomplished. He said, these things exist, everything. I have foreordained everything that comes to pass. It has existed in my mind, and then I created the world as the arena in which I was going to carry it out. Before the creation of the world, I determined that you're going to be my child. Before the creation of the world, I determined that this is the way history was going to unfold. Before the history of the world, Christ was crucified, and I determined that He was going to win. And because I determined that, it will happen. There's no question. Growing up, I grew up on the Pickwick Lake portion of the Tennessee River. I was on that river every day. And uh, you know the Tennessee River is, uh, has a series of locks and dams and hydroelectric generating uh, turbines all up and down the 
river and, and it's a navigable waterway too, distributing goods all over the, all over the country and, or from one end of the country to the other. And, but, you know, when you've got one lake that's up here and another is down here, it's, 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 it's a challenge to get that barge from here down to there. So how do they do it? Or from down here to up there? Well, I experienced it when I was a little boy. I was on somebody's houseboat, and they took me up to the, I didn't know what was going on. And we go up to these gigantic steel walls, and these doors open, creaking open, and we go into the middle of this enormous bathtub. And they shut the gates, they shut the doors behind us, and into those concrete walls, you pump millions and millions of gallons of water. It felt like we were on a tidal wave, shaking the boat around like this, and it took us up to the top, and then they opened the gates on the other side. I was convinced we were going to fall off the edge of the earth, but we just sailed over on the water that was the same height. Now, some years later, I went up into the control tower. And I watched the engineer. I saw the barge coming down. And the, the engineer hit the lever and it opened the gates. And he hit another lever and it filled up with the water. He hit the other lever, went out on the other side. It was perfectly obvious what was happening. That was the way to go through the dam. Now, other less than intelligent people in my area of the country went through that dam another way. They didn't listen to the, the, the warnings, and they went through those turbines. It didn't turn out so well. The best way was to go through the way the engineer had designed it. You may be, you may feel like that little boat. You're being thrown around in this gigantic bathtub of the world feel like it's tidal wave under you. You don't know all the forces that are working against you, and, and you, you wonder where God is. And so by His Spirit, He graciously bends down and He says, come up here. I know it's easy to forget. Let me give you a tour of the throne room. Jesus is on the throne. Jesus coordinating everything for your good and for His glory. Jesus is using all power and He has given His angels charge over you so that you will not strike your foot against a stone until He gets you safely home. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. There's going to be little, lots of suffering, but... Jesus wins. Brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on the throne. Bow before the throne. Stay bowed before that throne so that you hear the well done, good and faithful servant at the great day. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we pray for that one who has never bowed the knee to you. This would be the day of salvation. That one who is consumed with anxiety and worry because of the selected news they're watching. That one who is consumed with anger because uh, life is not going the way that they thought it should. That one who is angry at you because of suffering. Oh, Lord, would you bring these wanderers to you? Help them to bend the knee to look up and to see Christ on his throne. And then, Lord, as we keep our eyes fixed on that throne, make us a courageous and giving and merciful and sacrificial people.
servants of the kingdom of God, answering your call to bring the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. Please do it, we pray. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.